So during <coughs> during tonight's talk, I invite you to also practice awareness of the breath, if you can, so you can settle in to a comfortable posture, <coughs> and generally keep some part of your mind connected to this flow of breathing that's happening. That's generally the invitation that we have over the course of this week, is to, at all times of our life, see if we can keep some connection to breath during this week. I think the crackle's going to stay with us. Also, let me know if my, no- if my voice isn't loud enough, if you can hear me in the back. So t- the uh, title of <coughs> tonight's talk is The Beautiful Breath, and how we use it to fully awaken. And given this is the first night of the retreat, there are a couple of terms I'd like to define so that we can use them um, in talks and in the interviews when we meet one-on-one and in groups. I'd like to uh, describe um, the word samadhi and jhana, because you'll hear us using those two words, mindfulness and insight. And each one of those is worthy of their own talk, so I'll see if I can um, sum them up in a way that's not too brief. Starting with samadhi, <coughs> um, samadhi is defined as a, as a unified mind. So when your mind is not uh, split, when your mind is not um, easily distracted or ungrounded or restless, when your mind is not half here, half there, or half here, half nowhere, when you can feel that the full of your attention can be devoted to whatever it is you're doing, that mind has a type of samadhi. And samadhi is a broad category of any type of mind that, fe- that has this quality of being unified. We all have samadhi. You need samadhi to do even ordinary things. So just to give you um, easy access to samadhi, samadhi that you can know in daily life, um, you need samadhi to make a cup of tea. If you're too distracted, you can't actually do all the steps necessary to end up with a cup of tea. You have water boiling, you forget it's boiling. You're not paying attention when you pour the water in, it doesn't even hit the cup. So you have to be able to... uh, uh, unify your mind and keep it on task, just even to do that. That's just very ordinary samadhi. You need a type of samadhi to drive well. You know, if you're too distracted, you know, you'll hit the car in front of you, or you won't uh, be paying attention to traffic. You need samadhi to read a book. You need samadhi to um, get through your email. You need samadhi to do many things. And so actually, we're using samadhi all the time. It's when your mind either it you find yourself in a beautiful moment where it's your mind is unifying kind of by itself. You're walking along, you see a beautiful sunset, and you stop, and all of a sudden you forget all the million things you were thinking about, and the full of your attention is taken by the beauty of the sunset. And that's sort of naturally rising samadhi. Or there are times that you apply yourself. You say, my mind is a little bit too distracted to do the task at hand. So um, maybe someone calls you and you're a little bit distracted, but you... You know, you close your computer or whatever you have to do, you walk indoors. So you can really focus, you can really gather your attention. 
So anyways, we have samadhi with us all the time. Um, and it's just that general category. Anytime your, your mind feels collected to one task. And then samadhi, <coughs> the mind has a capacity to um, get profoundly unified, more than just ordinary moments of life. And those tend to be moments that, um, that stand out as being very, uh, very moving when the whole of your being unifies. So uh, if you look at other points of your life, really special moments, um, you might see that there's a type of samadhi that was there. So when my sister's children were born and I met them for the first time, especially uh, the day I arrived, my, the, my sister's youngest child, I arrived the day she was born, got to the hospital, and when I got to hold her, the full of my being showed up. I didn't have to work at it. I didn't have to meditate my way into it. Just upon holding her, I wouldn't say time stopped. It wasn't quite that. But <clears throat> my heart opened, my mind opened, and I was not distracted there was nothing that could intrude upon that moment. And it didn't take any effort. The moment was so beautiful. Again, uh, being out in nature, we often find that our minds have a way of collecting and easing in nature. So many people find a type of samadhi that arises in nature. Times that are very beautiful, uh, times that feel very profound. The profundity of a moment might have your mind collect. So the, the passing of a loved one, that whole time period, you might find that there's a type of um, unity of mind. Even if sometimes there's grief there, it's a very special time, so your mind might pull together, your heart might pull together. Falling in love is another time. Um, spiritual awakenings, when you feel profoundly moved by um, the beauty of the world or your sense of connection to others, you might find your mind and heart unify in those times. And part of what is prof- what's so profound is that a lot of you is there for it not sort of the ordinary whatever percent, but an extraordinary amount of you is there to have that experience. If you've been on retreat before, a lot of what people enjoy about the retreat is that their minds tend to collect. They're not so rattled and scattered as they are in daily life. And so simple things begin to really be um, delightful. Actually sipping your tea and tasting it, or seeing a sunset or stopping and seeing a lizard cross the path. The fact that more of you is there than what is uh, true in ordinary life, you start to be touched by life very deeply. More of you can be touched by the moment you're in. There are some traditions, especially the Hindu yogic traditions, where samadhi is really the goal. That type of mind and heart that's full, fully, uh, fully present for the moment you're in, um, for them is so divine that it's actually a whole spiritual path to unify your heart, unify your mind. And this unity, this power of unity, doesn't seem to have a limit. So you can keep unifying your mind, keep unifying your heart, and find that um, if you were to work at it intensively, what you thought was fully unified last month <coughs> pales in comparison to what's fully unified for you this month. And then you keep practicing, you find that there's just even more capacity for you to show up than there was before. So samadhi has this ever-increasing capacity as well. <coughs> the words we use to translate samadhi uh, often are concentration, uh, unification of mind or unity, 
and absorption. Unification of mind is a mouthful. And it's actually the one I like best, but because it's such a mouthful, we don't use it that much. And so we often talk about concentration in terms of what we do in an ordinary realm. We can concentrate our minds. And when our minds get deeply concentrated, we often talk about that in terms of absorption. And I've taken some time to grow into the world, the word concentration. Um, I actually don't like it very much because when I was younger and practicing and people told me to concentrate my mind, it um, unfortunately hooked into a type of um, assertiveness and aggressiveness that I had to focus my mind and use a lot of willpower. So a concentrated mind was like um, undiluted orange juice. Like it was just too concentrated. What I was doing with my mind was... um, and we're grabbing it and squeezing it and trying to get it to stay in one place and without knowing it, I was being a little bit too um, aggressive with that. So I like unification of mind. It's a little um, more forgiving. But I can deal. I can deal with concentration. (coughs) Eugene Cash um, gave me this definition of concentration. To uh, concentrate is to take many circles and make them all have the same center. And so you can have small circles, large circles. If they don't have the same center, they're all scattered. But if you can bring them all onto the same center, they can still be all different sizes. But they tend to gravitate around one center. And so <clears throat> with that definition, I kind of like concentration because you're building one center for your mind. You're building one presence for your mind, one seat for your mind. And then from there, you can take in you know, the vast... Um, landscape of a whole sunset with all the little things that are happening people in front of you and distance so there are many things happening but they're all concentered they all have this one center so that's maybe uh, um, a nicer definition of um, or translation of con- um, concentration absorption is that capacity when <coughs> uh, so much of you is given over to the task at hand to whatever you are encountering, that um, that you, it'd be hard to find a part of you that wasn't there. And again, sort of falling in love is like that. Um, so the full of you, uh, a lot of you is there in that moment and you get absorbed. Um, <clears throat> another thing I might say about that, um, that, that trying to get the word samadhi right in concentration is that when people told me to focus my mind and I was younger, I would squeeze it. I would squint at my mind, like squinting my eyes. I would try to um, take its activity out here and try to pull it in and to a, like a smaller band, a smaller target. And now when I focus my mind, I actually start by opening it up. So when I really want to focus my mind, I open it up and relax it, get a large view. And then it's like being in an IMAX theater. Another analogy. <clears throat> so if they're beaming this uh, movie on the projector screen and it's not in focus, the whole screen is out of focus, not just a part of it. So you're looking at this large view and you bring it into focus and suddenly you can see all this detail because the whole screen is focused. Rather than taking the whole movie and trying to put all that light into one spot, so being uh, having a large, spacious, relaxed mind and then bringing it into a type of intimacy where the detail is really clear. 
it's not that's not an exclusive focus. It's just a it's actually a very inclusive focus where detail becomes um, really clear. And if you want, you can attend to the detail, but not by having to force other things out. Okay, so that, that I tried to describe that earlier as rather than um, somebody sitting next to you and rustling their clothing and trying to stay on your breath, that makes them the enemy and you struggle with them. Relax and open up, <coughs> collect your mind, and then see if you can still find your breath while accepting everything that's happening. And then that's a, a mind that isn't going to create a struggle out of concentration, a struggle out of samadhi. <coughs> also, when the mind is in samadhi, when you, if you take a look at it, you'll find that some of the troubling aspects of your mind aren't showing up in that time. So there's not restlessness. You tend not to be that angry at yourself or other people. You tend not to be in caught in longing and craving for something you don't have. It, they're very satisfying states. Um, so a lot of the underlying troubles that happen inside of us in our heart and our mind tend to be alleviated for the moment when our mind gets absorbed or when samadhi is very strong. So coming into the word jhana, <coughs> um, jhana is the the Pali word for what we call absorption. So as your mind goes from sort of ordinary samadhi into maybe uh, a type of profound samadhi, like again when I was holding my newborn niece, <coughs> if it goes deeper than that so that you're fully absorbed, radically absorbed in whatever you're doing, we start calling that an absorption and the Pali word for that is jhana. So <clears throat> as you sit here in meditation, you'll find throughout the day, depending on the day, there'll be times when you can be with your breath, but you're, you, know, you have thoughts that are intruding very easily. Times that you're, you're with your breath, it feels kind of mundane, but you're not that distracted. And there are times when you are really with each breath, and each breath is so uh, enthralling in a way. And it's just a simple breath, but the very movement of your body and that you're in your body and you can feel it this intimately, that starts to be an absorption, that starts to feel like uh, this word jhana. So just to give you that, um, there's samadhi, which is a broad category, and jhana is when our mind starts to get more deeply absorbed in whatever we're attending. Buddhism has been around for so long and has gone through so many different cultures that there's a little bit of a, mm, uh, an interesting and sometimes frustrating debate over what the Buddha meant by jhana. What was he talking about when the Buddha talked about jhana? And there, is, there are clues in there, so out of the clues comes debate. Um, and those debates are interesting until you start to... Um, develop non-jhana agitation <laughs> when you start to get um, a lot of consternation around exactly what the Buddha meant. <clears throat> and so many of us, because we're, we're not, uh, we didn't grow up having to believe one school versus another, um, we can get to experiment. And having experimented in different schools of Buddhism and seen different uh, classifications of jhana, different types of absorptions that are possible, nice thing about them is they're all good. So <laughs> I'm in the all good school um, of jhana. <coughs> and what tends to differentiate 
different um, experiences of these absorption is just the depth of the absorption. So some people in some schools, they feel, they can feel jhana, like again, when they uh, hold a loved one, they can say, oh, I was so incredibly absorbed. And for some people, that might start to feel like a jhana. And maybe other schools will say, well, that's nice, but that's kind of light. Jhana actually begins when you're much deeper than that. And then there happens to be a school that thinks their version is light, and real jhana is deeper than that. <coughs> and so it's interesting, because they're actually, they're, you can keep deepening your absorption, your capacity to be absorbed. And each school tends to like the, the depth that they've achieved. <laughs> That's a very human <coughs> quality of the mind. Not that there aren't distinctions, not that there aren't interesting discussions, but you can get um, wrapped up in which one is right. And um, they all tend to have similar qualities. It's just a matter of depth. And they all tend to be beneficial. So that's uh, samadhi <coughs> and jhana, so the unity of mind and deep absorption. And then mindfulness, put simply, is when you bring your attention to bear on anything and you develop an intimacy with that experience, then you begin to draw out sort of a, an honest and kind um, impression of that moment. There's a lot of mindfulness present. So <clears throat> mindfulness is the ability to, to have sort of a, a true, unbiased reflection back through your senses often, but might be in your thoughts or emotions, of the present moment you're in. So it's a whole skill, it's a whole ability to not be too reactive or tuned out on those two um, poles, but how do you actually show up and be very present and connected and non-reactive so you can receive the truth of what's happening in that moment. And that's, <clears throat> that's where we get to learn what's actually going on because if you're not drawing in the truth of what's happening, it's somewhat distorted. And if we have reactivity about what's going on, we often cannot sink in enough to see what's truly happening. So we often have to suspend our judgment as best we can and then be patient and intimate with the flow of our experience. And from that, we can draw out uh, the truth of that moment. So that's what we're trying to develop when we develop mindfulness. It's how, how capable are we to land in a present moment and stay with it enough to see all the elements that are happening there and, and be honest about them. And Sometimes being present is challenging if you have to be present with something difficult. Like being present with um, shame is not something we often want to be present for. But when your mindfulness gets strong enough, you can even stay present while you get triggered into shame and then track the whole pattern of how shame is playing out. And you can learn a lot from that. But if your mind has to pull away or shut down or gets too reactive... You can't actually track what's happening. You're too caught up in what's happening. So opening up mindfulness is opening up an ability to feel what's, hap what's happening patiently and accurately, moment by moment. And mindfulness also deepens and builds in capacity. But that's, that tends to be where uh, it opens, an ability to settle in and feel what's going on.
mindfulness of the breath is staying with the actual breath as it's happening, being able to feel one breath after another, not anticipating the breath coming, not getting too caught up in the breath that happened, not kind of seeing the breath but not caring so much, but really giving yourself over and saying, okay, when I breathe in, this is my direct experience. And often when you're breathing mindfully and you're showing up, you also will end up seeing a lot of your emotions, you'll end up seeing a lot of your thoughts because they're kind of nearby. So you'll also be aware of them. But we sink in and dedicate ourselves to um, being as fully connected and intimate with the breath as possible. These are probably working definitions because to really get into them, again, um, each one is worthy of their own talk, but to give us enough to kind of land as a community with these common understandings. And then <clears throat> insight, which the, um, the Pali word is vipassana. Insight, <clears throat> in this tradition, comes from um, really what the Buddha was trying to teach. And he could have taught a philosophy, he could have taught knowledge, but he wanted us to see more deeply, not just to understand how things work, but to penetrate our own minds, hearts, and bodies to see what's going on directly. And he was primarily concerned with, uh, with suffering, its causes, what it's like not to suffer, how we can end suffering, and how we can be free. So all this, this, uh, this range of experiences, suffering and not suffering, is where he wanted us to grow our wisdom and capacity. So you can develop samadhi, you can be deeply absorbed, you can be deeply mindful with whatever, whatever you're with, but you may not be liberating yourself from suffering in that moment. So I could, um, I could sit down at uh, my favorite Thai restaurant, fully absorb myself, let go of the past, let go of the future, be given my favorite <coughs> red curry or whatever I'm wanting that day. <coughs> I could taste every bite and be fully there for all the flavors. So there's a lot, there's an absorption and there's mindfulness there. But I'm not, I'm not, using that necessarily to um, understand and penetrate my habits of suffering. And that's where insight comes in. So insight comes in as we begin to take the Buddha's advice and begin to investigate our direct experience to see some of the things that he wanted us to get um, much more hip about. So getting hip about uh, the nature of change. Getting uh, a deeper understanding that satisfaction through changing experiences has to be temporary. There's no lasting satisfaction in tem temporary experiences. When you s can see deeply into your mind, heart, and body and see that nothing goes without change, there can't be a rock-solid self there. All the self that you think you are is also malleable and changing. So this is where we begin to aim our attention once we have developed mindfulness and stabilized it some with samadhi. You can develop these things uh, separately or you can develop them concurrently. And so what we're trying to offer on this retreat is how to actually develop these concurrently. And that's what makes 
um, <clears throat> mindfulness of the breath, one of the most amazing practices and why so many people do it is that mindfulness of the breath um, gives us all of these at the same time. If you're mindful of the breath, it has a calming, gathering capacity. And because of its ever-changing nature, it's very easy to see uh, anicca, this changing quality of experience. You can see uh, the passing of satisfaction. You can see that there's no self-state that, has a, that uh, lasts for very long right there while you're breathing. So you don't have to make them two different endeavors. They can be all cultivated in one practice. Mindfulness, mindfulness of the breath does that, and mindfulness of the body does that, which is why we try to teach people to be aware of their bodies and aware of their breath. And although it's not talked so much in classical Buddhism, many people have discovered that uh, mindfulness of hearing um, can also carry them all the way to liberation. And that's not emphasized so much in the Buddhist teachings. It's there as a possibility, but it's not pulled out as carefully as the body is and the breath is. But there are many people who do spend a lot of time um, taking in sound, and they can uh, absorb themselves into sound. And then they can see the changing nature of sound. And they can. it also tends to be a place where there's a lot of... Um, this blending of insight, mindfulness, uh, concentration, all happening at the same place. So, um, just one little um, metaphor description for Offering, maybe. I got the grammar on that wrong. But um, <clears throat> what this might look like um, to blend these two, you might be able to do them at the same time, or you might slightly pendulum back and forth between the two, developing samadhi, um, developing jhana absorption, and using that for insight. So <clears throat> when I was younger, um, even at the age of 12, I spent a lot of time in the Canadian wilderness. And we used to, um, we were canoeing through these lakes and rivers and cooking over an open fire. So I spent a lot of time gazing at fires out in the wilderness. My mind would be very simple, very far from school and all the complexities of my classwork. And I spent a lot of time uh, canoeing down rivers and sitting by really beautiful waterfalls. And so imagine you're sitting by a waterfall and you can take that one event, the beauty of it, the profundity of it, this very beautiful waterfall, the sound of the, of the water flowing by, and you can just settle in and settle in and settle in and settle in. You find that what you want to do is, you know, give up your job, you want to get a little cabin, build it right by this waterfall, live out your days in this beautiful, beautiful, idyllic, peaceful setting. So you're using the beauty of this waterfall to develop this deep, deep, deep sense of well-being. And you find that your mind uh, isn't so haggard because you've found this beautiful perfection, easy to let go of the people that teased you in, in grade school and whatever your most painful memories are. <clears throat> you start to feel kind of simple and whole and inspired. 
So by this waterfall, you can develop very deep samadhi. And then, <clears throat> if you want to, you can begin to turn into the actual waterfall and turn your attention in and you see all this water passing by and you hear all the splattering of all the water hitting the ground or the water below. And if you can tune your mind into it, because you're so relaxed and so present and not half here, half there, you start getting into the, the sound of that. Or if you're in a, maybe a cabin or in a tent when it starts to rain, and you feel that, and you feel the beauty of it, but also you begin to feel all the tiny little uh, parts of that experience. Then you can start very, kind of effortlessly, tuning your mind more into picking up anicca, picking up the rapidly changing nature of experience. And you have this basic sense of well-being, non-distraction, and then you can really lean into this arising and passing of experience. And it's not threatening because you have this, you've just come from this place of deep well-being. When you open up to that much change and changing experience, um, it's sort of fascinating. And after a time, because everything's changing, you find that your mind starts to get a little bit complicated. You sort of think, it's not that same holistic experience because you've been drawn into all the various changing pieces and so your mind starts to get just a little bit choppy with that. And you let go and you back up a little bit and you take in the view again and your mind relaxes and regathers into the beauty of it. That tends to be <clears throat> how um, people will slightly pendulum back and forth between uh, the pasana practice and uh, concentration practice if you find them to be distinct. They can be very close to each other. The samadhi tends to bring this deep sense of well-being. The vipassana practice tends to begin to look into the, the, the flow of experience and seeing all the moving pieces of it and see how things are actually working. And then if that feels too complicated and you get spun out, you just back up a little bit and you rest the mind again into the beauty of being by that waterfall. Maybe if you haven't spent enough time by waterfalls, you might know well, it's like to gaze at a crackling fire or to hear rain at your window. So you're using the beauty of one to support this investigation of the other, and the fascination of the investigation of the other uh, awakens the mind. And so the beauty isn't soporific. And, that's, and these two uh, blend back and forth. You can also... <coughs> merge the two and just at the same moment you're seeing the beauty of the waterfall you see the beauty of all the little changing experiences and so that's where Vipassana and Samadhi when they when you get absorbed in Vipassana and this is what very deep insights are like you get absorbed into Vipassana in that moment it is the very nature of change that is so absorbing and because it feels so authentic it holds you there. You feel like you're witnessing truth and there's nowhere your mind needs to go because it's so honest. This, is, this has been true all along. Things are this radically changing. And so Vipassana has a way that it can hold you in its own absorption. Yet it can be good to uh, pendulum back and forth until you can stabilize yourself 
in that union of this insight with the uh, sense of deep well-being that can come from samadhi. So <clears throat> with that, I'd like to turn to the, um, the sermon that the Buddha gave on <clears throat> mindfulness of breathing, the Anapanasati Sutta. And you can see some of this in the very layout of how he even opens up this talk. So most people begin with um, with the, the pith of the sutta, which I have here. But again, as I was even finding this to print out, I saw the preamble. And it's, I think it's a very beautiful preamble to this sutta. He's <coughs> sitting in one of his um, more established monasteries, and he's looking around and he sees all these monks and nuns surrounded by other monks and nuns and they're all engaged in teaching. And so he's kind of purveying this large community. And he's so taken with the beauty of it. He's so taken with everybody's working hard and people are awakening and he sees dozens of these fully enlightened beings. He sees many beings that are on their way to enlightenment. Everybody's very inspired. And he says to the community, <clears throat> um, you're all working very hard. This is um, very uplifting to see this. Um, very rare and precious. I want to give you a talk in one month. One month from now I'm going to give you a talk that is going to help you in your liberation. So even with that setting as moving as it was, it wasn't necessarily time for him to begin initiating the Anapanasati Sutta. And many times it is. Many times he's able to just see what's happening and he drops in right there and gives a discourse. But in this one, he says, I'm going to be here for a month and I'm going to deliver this talk. And that gives time actually for word to get around that the Buddha is going to stay in this one place for a month. And people begin collecting around so he could give this one discourse on mindfulness of breathing. So then people... Uh, the monks and nuns and lay people have collected. <clears throat> and he goes through this talk. And so, <clears throat> you know, this is was given in Pali, translated into English. I'm not sure how well it, it carries the moment, but I wanted to set a bit of the stage so that when you see him giving this talk, he's being very clear, but it has this beautiful setting uh, around him of this community of people, many who have awoken, many people on their way to awakening. And he, he offers this There is a case where a monk, having gone to the wilderness, to the shade of a tree, to an empty building, sits down, folds his or her legs crosswise. I guess if it's a monk, it can't be his or hers, but I think you get the point. Holding his or her body erect and setting mindfulness at the fore. Always mindful he breathes in. Always mindful he breathes out. So that's what we've been doing today, just starting to establish that, that very continuous awareness of in and out breathing, whether we're sitting or walking. And then you deepen your intimacy with the breath. So it's not just knowing what's an in-breath and what's an out-breath. You begin to know the quality of the breath that's happening. Not only am I breathing in, this particular breath is long. Not only am I breathing out, 
this particular out-breath is short. So it's a little more intimate connection to breathing. And then <clears throat> the next step in, so you're breathing and you're aware of your body and because you've opened up to the body channel to even feel the breath, you start to become aware of your whole body, whether you want to or not. You can start to feel as you breathe, your, your body is pulsing. You can feel your heartbeat sometimes just by bringing your body into the, just by bringing your attention into the body at all. Suddenly you can feel things in your body you might not have otherwise. And this can be cultivated where you're aware of the whole body while you're breathing. nice thing about doing a week-long retreat is you will experience this. You will experience that just by attending the breath. Knowing when you're breathing in, knowing when you're breathing out, deepening that intimacy, you start opening the whole channel to your body. And then beyond being aware of your body, you start to, again because of the intimacy, you learn how to calm your body down. So if your body is feeling sore and you're breathing, when you're aware of that part of your body and you start breathing, the tension in that body begins to open and alleviate. If a part of your body is tired and you're breathing, breathing with that part of your body begins to energize it some. And suddenly the whole of your body starts to feel uh, balanced and well, there's good circulation. So this is the first part of it, <clears throat> being aware of the breath, being aware of the long, short breath, being aware of the whole body while you're breathing, and then learning to calm and balance your body. So as you're sitting here, you're quite comfortable. As your body begins to become comfortable and you keep being aware of your breathing, you'll start to feel this, uh, this subtle circulation of an open, relaxed body. And that subtle circulation, we use the poly word PT. You don't have to remember this. But the circulation, it's very pleasant to feel your body happy and healthy and uh, all the energy channels are open. The English word here uses rapture, so you start to feel the subtle rapture. And as the energy in your body starts to actually flow and you get inspired and you're feeling strong and positive in that moment, the energy flowing through you can be very delightful. Maybe some of you already experienced that. Um, some of you will experience that. Deeper than this rapture is a very profound sense of well-being. And so you open up to the rapture in your body, you open up to this subtle uh, circulation of um, refined energy. And if you check into your body, check into your heart, check into your mind, you'll find that there's this underlying sense of deep and pervasive well-being. That tends to be, that uh, refers to this characteristic sukha. As you're aware of your body and your, and your breath, and as you're settling in, you automatically become aware of what's going on in your heart and your mind. Because if your mind is distracted, you know it, because you can't find the breath. If you're able to feel your breath, and you feel thoughts starting to intrude, you'll become aware of which thoughts are intruding just because you're that present with the breath. So you begin to see how your mind is working, even though you're attending the body. Because you're so present, 
you can begin to see and learn from what types of thoughts have a lot of charge to them, which thoughts pull you away, which thoughts inspire you and actually are helpful uh, guidance. And then <clears throat> you can be learn you can be learn you can learn to calm your thoughts. You can begin to invite calm to your mental body. With this deep sense of well-being that's happening in your body, you can begin to relax and calm your mental stream as well. It's not that you've turned your attention to your mind. You're still with your body, but the relationship to your breath and your body, that relationship is so uh, open and will be progressively open as you practice here. You begin to calm your thoughts, calm the passions in your mind. If there's any little bit of irritation or frustration, you can breathe there too, and then that lets go. <clears throat> you find that, um, you find this deep sense of satisfaction in those moments. And then you can begin a deep uh, release of the mind, very deep holdings that you may have around who you think you need to be and where you thought you had to go in life and old stories that you thought defined you. When you have a pervasive sense of well-being in the body and you begin to have a pervasive sense of well-being in your heart and your mind, it's easier then to begin to breathe and let go of uh, places where there's been a lot of pain or places where there's so much longing that you couldn't be imagining yourself being happy now because you didn't have that thing yet. Your ideal partner or the deep apology you needed from one of your parents or that trip to Nova Scotia. Whatever, whatever you were hoping would really make you happy, you find you are already that happy. So longings that were unmet begin to soften and let go. Pains that you've had begin to soften and let go. And then you find the mind is quite free. And this depth of absorption into the body has uh, an ongoing progression. And as it keeps progressing, you keep finding there are deeper releases of the mind where it's caught in clinging and frustration, greed and craving. And so just staying with the breath as it's described here, this is just the opening. And then it goes deeper, this one uh, offering that the Buddha gave. Hopefully we'll share more about that deeper progression. But I wanted to show you the possibility that just staying with the breath sometimes feels a little mundane. Like, okay, another breath, another breath. Doesn't really matter. I'll take some time and think about something else. But actually deepening your intimacy with the breath has this progression. And so it's really worth um, staying dedicated to the breath. There's a, um, a monk in Australia named Ajahn Brahm, and Brahm is the short name, it's Brahmawansa, I think. <clears throat> he was the first person that really articulated the beauty of this Theravadan path and the beauty of the breath. And I think up until I had heard that, I was nobly dedicated to be with my breath and get tired but rally and come back and feel my breath again. But, you know, he's a fully ordained monk, um, very aware of uh, the suffering the Buddha talked about. 
And he has this beautiful description of what it's like to fall in love with the breath. And so I allowed myself to experiment with that. And you can. You can fall in love with the breath just like a newborn child. You can fall in love with the breath as if it's always been your best friend. And the distance between you and the breath now is the distance of a type of familiarity that's gotten a little bit dense and a little bit um, compacted. So you have to kind of awaken that relationship with some dedication to feel the breath, honor the breath, to see the beauty in the breath. And it is this incredible miracle. I mean, <clears throat> how many of you would like to see a miracle? Sure, I would. Breathe. <laughs> there. Walk. You know, we have these miracles that we've grown so used to, they've dulled, and we're looking elsewhere for miracles. But you're in one of the most amazing things the universe has ever produced with a telescope trying to find something worth paying attention to. And you could just sit here in awe of your heartbeat. You could just sit here in awe that you have over a trillion cells that are conspiring to keep you alive, and you're not even in on it. You have to feed it a little bit, wash it a little bit, but they do a tremendous amount of work to keep you going, and you want to look elsewhere for some something worth you know attending to. Or I didn't get the body I wanted, it's not like what looks in the magazine. You have an amazing body, and you're in it. And you could really just sit there in wrapped in awe of your heartbeat and of your breath, that you have emotions that come and go, that you have a mind that thinks, that you have all these capacities of perception. And so <clears throat> entering into this full awe of the breathing process, and when your mind has sort of slid off like, ah, it's just the breath. That's you That's you looking at, at a miracle and turning away. It's not the miracle hasn't disappeared. It's really the state of mind has gotten dull. It's just as miraculous. This breath you're taking right now is just as miraculous as any breath. It's just that at times our minds get dull. And so we rally and we get re-inspired. Even that word, to be inspired, the spire of that is, is respiration. So when you're inspired, that means that you have full breath in you. When I was... <clears throat> um, I got to, to spend a year in Burma practicing. And I went to this monastery. Um, the first monastery was, was very tough. And I knew that going in, and I definitely knew that going out. They lived up to their re reputation. It was a very tough monastery. I learned a lot, gained a lot of strength going there. And I went to the second monastery, and they had a very different approach, just as uh, rigorous, but they cared a lot about samadhi. And I think the first um, monastery, they cared about samadhi, but they cared also a lot about willpower. And the second monastery, they cared about this beauty, the, the beauty that's possible in the heart and mind. Yet I walked in as this warrior, and it took them a couple of months to like work that over-aggressive warrior out of me, that haggard, ready for another fight. Um, like, you know, put your sword down and breathe, and it's all going to be okay. <clears throat> so it took a while for this to happen. I would go in there, and I, I wasn't getting it, wasn't getting it. I was working really hard, working really hard. And uh, this, um, the head monk at this monastery called the Pauk Monastery, 
he was just so delightful every day, and he took all of my my highs and my lows and my um, my grumblings and my fascinations very steady, day in and day out. And I kept wondering, like, when's he going to run out of advice? When's he going to run out of joy? And like, oh, this guy again, okay. But every day, very fresh, he met me. And his English was okay. It wasn't great, so you know, we had that repeat things many times. And one time I went in to say, um, it's like, I don't know, I, I'm breathing, I'm doing practice all day long, and I don't know if it's working for me. Um, he looked at me kind of funny and kind of puzzled. He said, okay, I'm going to give you very important advice. I was like, okay. So I sat up and uh, really pay attention. He said, I want you to practice just like this. Are you ready? I was like, yeah, okay. Here he is. He's really going to give me what I need. You know, I've been here now nine months, so <clears throat> let's see. What have I been missing? He said, I want your practice to be like this. And he twinkled and looked me right in the eye. I was like, oh, I've not been doing that. I've been on the breath, off the breath, counting my breaths, but distracted on my breath, but like, I've never tried that. What's that like? So <clears throat> I was kind of excited about it, but didn't know how to do it. <laughs> I was like, how do you do that? I tried a few times, then my mind just got as busy and caught up in itself as it, as it always had. But it stayed with me. It's like, that's, I get it intuitively. That's what I'm aiming for, this release of stress, this release of worry. I'm taking up the worry every time. I can't stop myself. But what if I could release the worry, release the stress, release the agitation? And then a, <clears throat> a few weeks later, um, this nun was passing through, a young nun named Sister Dipankara. And she had a very profound impact, more than anybody else I met. And I only talked to her for 10 minutes. Um, but she had a very strong reputation of being one of the most amazing meditators um, alive on the planet today. So I got a chance to talk to her. I was a little nervous going in. And um, she was very polite. And I was describing my practice and how much my mind was wandering. And you know, I was very noble with my effort, but... I just wasn't getting this release that I thought was possible. And um, she said, uh, don't put effort in until you're happy. Because the effort you're, you're using when you're not happy, it probably is not good. I was like, oh, it's another conundrum because like, I'm never happy. <laughs> so, you know, how, when would I ever do anything? You know, I'm so used to being... I don't know, tied in knots. They're like, well, what do I do? And she said, go about your day in a way that makes you happy. And in those times that your mind is happy, then focus on the breath. That's what I do. I was like, oh, well, if you do it, okay, you're not some lazy nun. You know, you're an amazing meditator, but you're not like you're not working hard. Now, to be around Pog Saida and Sister Dipankara, a lot of delight, a lot of ease, a lot of um, inspiration, a lot of um, capacity for knowing the mind and being having this release and having this joy. So I began renegotiating. Like, oh, I'm, you know, here my mind's wandering. I must put effort in to stop it from wandering. And I do my little check. Am I happy? It's like, no, I'm, I'm frustrated. 
like, okay, don't block onto the breath out of frustration, okay? So I sit there and like, well, let me see if I could dissipate this frustration some. I stand up, look out the window, beautiful view, sit down. And then right there is my breath. And if I'd fought my way with my breath, I'd be exhausted by the time I got there and I would fall back defeated. But learning the importance of happiness and contentment and cultivating them, not down the road when we're finally liberated, but things that actually are part of our liberation. So doing these reflections that bring about ease and relaxation, and as Richard said, he's probably, and I'm going to be in on it, trying to hopefully not overdo it and yet keep reminding you that relaxation is a very important part of liberation. But not relaxed into type of a, you know, a wet noodle. Um, relaxed and present, relaxed and intimate, relaxed and appreciative. Those are more engaging qualities. So, re- like last night with the crickets, really appreciating those sounds. Relax and appreciate. Relax your body. Relax your mind. And then appreciate the breath. And then when you're there with the breath, you can begin to see what a ride, what a mystery. Everything's constantly changing. Because of the underlying sense of well-being, all that change doesn't make us, doesn't make us anxious. There's enough well-being in the ease and relaxation that we can more fully open up to change without resisting it. It's like <clears throat> you know, driving a really powerful car with a really powerful emergency brake. You're trying to overcome the brake with the gas, but you're, the car is vibrating so much you pull up on the brake out of safety. If you're afraid of change and you really are trying to liberate yourself, those two things can be um, in opposition. But if you come into a, a flow of well-being where the mind is simple, your life is simple, you can feel a breath and be satisfied, then as you turn towards the ever-changing nature of experience, you find that there's not as much of this fearful clutching and so you can open up to the flow, open up to the mystery, and then that not get so easily caught by habits of mind. So it's not just a breath. It's not just a breath, so what? It's a breath as a path. It's a breath that can breathe your path. And as you get to know your breath, you can find your breath while you're driving. You can find your breath right when you wake up. You can find your breath as you're falling asleep. You can find your breath in conversation with people you care about. You can find your breath in conversation you're arguing with. You can find your breath anywhere on the planet. You can find your breath all over the place. And it's not an exclusive breath. It's actually by finding your breath that you find your body. And by opening to your breath in your body, you're more fully present for whatever that moment is. So it's not so much about seclusion. It's not so much about, I wish that wasn't happening. I want to be with my breath in the in an either-or situation. The breath is a both-and. When you really feel the breath and integrate it, it becomes an embodied experience as you move through life. And because of you have this underlying sense of well-being, there's less resistance to the truth of things, that all things change, that there's plenty of satisfaction out there, it's just that it's all temporary. And you can be okay with that because of a deeper underlying sense of well-being. That's the offering for tonight, and we'll give more instruction on how to do this tomorrow morning. Um, but um, I'm glad we're on the ride together. 
glad you made it through your first day. Sometimes this day is a lot of transition and the monkey mind of our ordinary lives dissipating some. Glad you're on the ride. Let's just sit for a moment and let that settle, and then uh, there'll be one little announcement. And letting the words dissipate. Coming down into this unfathomable miracle of having a human body And see if you can align yourself with the flow of breathe, of breathing sensations and of breath. And see if you can find that relaxation and savoring inspiration, breath by breath. You can stay here a little longer, or you can begin experimenting, finding this beautiful breath out while you're walking. Yeah. Richard has an announcement. Yeah. Just want to make this while we're all together. Let me make this announcement that um, tomorrow we're going to start interviews, and as we mentioned uh, last night, uh, at least this first piece of interviews will be group, uh, and so half. Half of you will have interviews tomorrow and the other half the following day. So um, please, they're going to post the, the, the interviews, who you're interviewing with, which room and the time. That's going to be posted. They said, I think, tonight before the ending. You don't have to check tonight. Certainly, please check, uh, make a point to check before this, this, the first sit after breakfast when we come back to have the instructions. Just have checked before then. Okay. Yeah. We turned off. Yeah. So, yeah. So please en- uh, enjoy the walking period.